Hey everyone, welcome back. This is your instructor Chris, and we will be having our lecture on EMS systems, which is lecture one of the program. In this lecture, we will be talking about license and training requirements, history of EMS, EMS systems, pre-hospital certification levels, components of the EMS system, and roles and responsibilities of the EMT that which we will call pre-1965, there was really no EMS system. EMS, for all intents and purposes, gets its foundation from the battlefield. During the various wars, there has always been some type of medical component on the battlefield. And we can go back into the ancient wars, Napoleon's wars and so forth and find that there was essentially triage being done during these battles to ascertain what injuries soldiers had and what type of medical attention they needed on the battlefield and then once they got off the battlefield in the hospital setting. In this we find that in 1797 Napoleon's war is what gave us the foundation to triage. Later on in this program, we are going to be talking about triage as we utilize it today, but back then it was essentially a pre-hospital type of battlefield treatment where it was essentially what is wrong with your victim and let's give them some quick medical attention and get them to the hospital setting. From here, we can now jump forward to 1865 until the Civil War, and triage becomes more of a battlefield component. This is one of the first times that we actually see battlefield hospitals. Um, you may have seen various movies where they're sh showing Civil War soldiers getting their legs um, cut off, arms cut off, because back then that was the treatment for a limb injury where bleeding couldn't be controlled so it was thought let's cut the limb off cauterize and this would subsequently save the patient triage grew out of this as well as pre-hospital care because treatment for the first time was being done in the battlefield setting from here we have different significant dates as we lead up to the start of the EMS system in the United States as we know it today. In the 1920s, there was volunteer rescue squads in Virginia and New Jersey. 1958, Dr. Safar um, had subsequently developed mouth-to-mouth -mouth and it became a very good technique, which then built upon in the 1960s where we started to see CPR. You will find throughout this program that EMS owes a lot of its foundational treatment to the military. Subsequently, during wartime, when the military is able to build upon triage and battlefield treatments and so forth. 
As a matter of fact, what we do today in tactical medicine is a direct result from the Vietnam War, the Iraq and Afghanistan War, and much from the last two wars, we have now developed tourniquets and IFAT kits that are being utilized in trauma care. But we will be talking about that later on during your TCC trauma care, trauma casualty care uh, lecture. So in 1965, there were many deaths on the highways of the United States. In 1966, a white paper, research paper, was conducted to determine why people were dying in traffic accidents. The results from this white paper, which is a very significant part of EMS history, is what led to modern day EMS. From that, a standard was adopted throughout the United States and then local EMS grew from that. This paper was entitled Accidental Death and Disability, the Neglected Disease of Modern Society. What this paper was able to do was it first exposed deficiencies in emergency care. It pretty much determined that there was no standard to ambulances and they were uh, inappropriately designed as well as very ill-equipped. There was no standard in what an ambulance should be and the equipment it should carry as well as the training that personnel should have that were driving these ambulances. And because of that, um, it was found that people were subsequently dying because we had lack of standards. As a matter of fact, over 50% of the mortuaries were providing the ambulances throughout the United States. If you look at Southern California, one of the histories of Southern California EMS is many of the ambulance companies were developed from actually mortuary companies such as Risher Ambulance. Risher, the family Risher, owned a mortuary and then started to provide an ambulance service for emergency care and that's how it grew out. That's how the ambulance company grew out of the mortuary business. Today, as you know, now we only have a few ambulance companies and their conglomerates, but we owe much to the mortuary business as they were the first providers of ambulances. So out of this white paper, the federal government formed the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, and within it, they developed the Department of Transportation. These two agencies set standards for emergency care that we have to comply with or we will comply with. You will learn later on in other lectures the actual requirements that are set forth by these two federal agencies. Along with that, money was set aside to help states to develop state and local systems. Now the part that history doesn't tell us is that the EMS system was actually frowned upon by nurses, doctors, and attorneys. It was believed that there was no way they could train emergency personnel to respond to emergencies in the field. It was thought that only nurses and doctors were adequately trained and skilled to provide these essential services. 
So the development of local EMS met with much resistance. So what you have now is in 1966, researchers conducted a white paper and were able to identify that some type of pre-hospital care program needed to be developed. But it wasn't until the 1970s in California, specifically Los Angeles, where the paramedic program was developed and implemented. It took an actual act bill to be signed into law by then Governor Ronald Reagan to allow pre-hospital care non-physicians to provide emergency medical care in the field. The Wedworth Townsend Paramedic Act of 1970 is what set the standard for the paramedic program. This act was actually opposed by nurses, doctors, and attorneys. It was believed that only physicians could provide pre-hospital care and that there was no way that pre-hospital care could be provided by non-physicians. This act changed that despite the opposition. Kenneth Hahn, Ronald Reagan, and Dr. Graff were instrumental in getting this legislation passed. And this is how the paramedic program was born in the United States of America. The paramedic program grew in popularity in the United States because of a television show produced by NBC called Emergency. America every week got to see the exploits of firefighter paramedics Johnny Gage and Roy DeSoto of the Los Angeles County Fire Department. And in this, America saw two firefighter paramedics providing emergency care to a plethora of emergencies. It was at this point that other cities throughout the United States started to develop their own paramedic programs. And as you can see, now paramedics are throughout the entire world. Just remember, it wasn't until 1970 that we did not, we finally had our first paramedics. So, what was the first paramedic school? Well, it was the Daniel Freeman Paramedic School and it received the accreditation number of 0001. I am happy to say that I am a graduate of Daniel Freeman Paramedic School, which is now UCLA, and many of us that attended Daniel Freeman are very proud of that. Daniel Freeman developed the pilot project for the mobile intensive care, uh, mobile intensive care paramedic program. This is at one time paramedics were known as MICPs. Today, we now call them EMTPs, Emergency Medical Technician Paramedics. But history-wise, it was MICP, Mobile Intensive Care Paramedic. Now, remember those ambulance companies I told you about? Well, McCormick Ambulance, back during this time, donated an ambulance to the Inglewood Fire Department, and this became the first advanced life support unit in the nation. Since majority of you are probably digital people, I would challenge you to go to YouTube and search for the show Emergency and at least watch a couple of episodes. What's funny about the show is not much has really changed. What we were doing back in the 1970s, we are doing today. The only difference is the equipment is much better. 
But for the most part, much of the treatments that we were performing back in the 1970s, we're still, in, we're still doing today. We're still giving nitroglycerin for chest pain, epinephrine during a cardiac arrest, defibrillating patients that require defibrillation. Much of this stuff has not changed because we go back to those triage and pre-hospital care treatments and what we were doing back in the 1700s, 1800s, and 1900s is been battlefield proven. The only thing we've done is we perfected it by utilizing science and technology to make the treatments much better and effective. Now I'm sure some of you listening to this lecture, your goal is to be hired onto a fire department and maybe become a firefighter paramedic. But let me give you a little history. Though there were firefighter paramedics back in the 1970s, the majority of the paramedic services were actually provided by ambulance companies. One company was called Medivac Ambulance and they provided the paramedics to the city of El Monte, Monterey Park, Montebello, San Gabriel, and Vernon. And I believe there was a few other cities. These cities had local fire departments, but it was too expensive to send firefighters to paramedic school because paramedic school was six months and cities could not afford to send their personnel away for that six months. So they contracted with local ambulance companies to provide paramedic services. So back in the late 70s and early 80s, if you really wanted to be a paramedic, you had to work for a local ambulance company. That changed. The fire departments then decided that they wanted to take over the EMS business. And it was in the late 80s to early 90s where the fire departments really pushed and subsequently were successful in taking over the EMS business. And today in California, we could see that if you want to be a 911 paramedic, you're going to have to work for a fire department. Now, the funny part, though, is if you go back to the Midwest and uh, East Coast, you could be a paramedic for a local ambulance company as opposed to the fire department because, believe it or not, 80% of the firefighters in the United States are volunteer or on-call status. California and the East Coast are one of the very few areas where firefighters are full-time. So that's just a little bit of a tidbit just to have some EMS paramedic history. As we have seen over the last few years, EMS is starting to evolve. And in a way, we're kind of being forced to evolve because of the war on terrorism. After 9-11, we found that we were very ill-equipped to handle situations like that. Resources were just overwhelmed and it was found that the fire department just could not provide the amount of care that needed to be provided in incidents like that. So we started to look at how could we train other personnel in emergency medicine. Today now we are seeing EMTs get greater training and now police are getting tactical training so that in the event of the active shooter or terrorist act, police could respond into a hot zone and if they come across patients and victims, they could provide emergency medical care while under, essentially under fire. And this is something that is new. Now, unfortunately, countries like Israel have been doing this for decades. But now that the war of terror has come home to the United States, we are starting to look at how we could provide emergency medical tactical care in a hot zone 
while attempting to keep everybody safe. Nobody has really come up with the national standard yet and everyone is left to develop their own TACMED programs. But today we are seeing we have paramedics on helicopters, we have SWAT paramedics. Um, Los Angeles County has one of the biggest police SWAT paramedic programs known as SEB in the nation. So since the 1970s we see that things are changing and evolving and depending on what you want to do in EMS you could be part of uh, so many different you have so many opportunities ahead of you um, in this wonderful field. So let's talk about the components of the EMS system. Components of the EMS system include public access, clinical care, medical direction, integration of health services, information systems, prevention, EMS research, communication systems, human resources, legislation and regulation, evaluation, system finance, public education, and education systems. We also have an additional component called links in the EMS system. And we go from essentially the order of operation where we begin with recognition and access. So essentially someone has to recognize that someone's in need of emergency care and then access emergency medical system, which we would just say call 911. From that, the person who recognizes that someone is in need of emergency care will call 911 and talk to a dispatcher. From that, the dispatcher will take the information and make a call for service and dispatch the first responders. Now, dependent on the EMS system that you're a part of, first responders could include basic life support, which is you, and advanced life support, which are paramedics. Once these two components arrive at emergency scene, they're going to evaluate, care for the patient, and then decide on the best transport needs of the patient. Not all patients are transported by ground ambulance. Some require to be flown out via helicopter based on their needs or the distance of the hospital. The last component to this system is the emergency department, getting the person or the patient to the right hospital based on their needs. Okay, so let's break this down a little bit further. Recognition. Recognition is when somebody recognizes that someone needs some type of emergency care or the patient recognizes that they need emergency care. Believe it or not, we have patients that will be in denial and will not activate the 911 system. But if it's recognized that someone needs emergency care, they can activate 911. It's just the recognition part that needs to be done first. Now, today, accessing 911 is simply pulling out your cell phone and calling 911. But there was a time that this was not even possible. Somebody would have to find a payphone at a corner and activate 911 this way. But calling 911 um, is part of the emergency medical system. From that point, 911 dispatchers will take in the information and dispatch the closest units to that patient. Now here's where things get a little different first responders. 
depending on the emergency will also depend on the amount of first responders that may be dispatched to this particular emergency. For example, if the emergency is a traffic accident, well, we can count on law enforcement responding, a BLS ambulance, fire engine with at minimum three to four firefighters, and a paramedic unit with two paramedics. That's a lot of personnel responding to one incident, but that's the way the EMS system has been built, especially here in California. Basic life support, once again, is the EMT level. Now, law enforcement is not really trained to the EMT level or the EMR level, which is known as emergency medical responder. That's kind of changing now, but we're still not there yet. So law enforcement has basic first aid. Now, depend, now depending on the type of emergency, paramedics may not even make it to the scene. If the fire department gets there and the fire captain determines that this is a BLS call, the engine company can handle the emergency care of that patient and then have the local ambulance company take that patient from the scene to the local hospital. Sometimes they may even determine that the patient does not require to go to the local hospital by ambulance and can be actually transported via a car or maybe the patient doesn't require any medical attention whatsoever. So these decisions are left to the person in charge of the scene. The last component, or I should say the second to last component, is transportation. As I mentioned, transportation can be a ground ambulance, can be a uh, air helicopter or maybe even a vehicle based on what is wrong with the patient and then the last component is the emergency department now we just can't say we're going to transport all patients to the uh, local hospital some patients require specific types of care so you may have to bypass one hospital to get the patient to the hospital that is better for their medical needs such as possibly needing a cath lab because they're having a heart attack. So sometimes specialty hospitals will be utilized and the local hospital will be bypassed because the patient requires the specialty care facility. Now you've probably seen the star of life in your travels. It's a star and has the snake running down the, running down the middle grasping the, sti the, the staff. Well, there are six branches to that star or six components to that star. One is early detection, two is early reporting, three is early response, four is on-scene care, five is care in transit, and six is transfer to definitive care. That's what the star life is designed after. Now as an EMT you are going to have certain rules and regulations that have been developed regarding your scope of practice. So the first thing that you need to know is the California Code of Regulations. This defines your state scope of practice. Essentially what can you do throughout the state of California as an EMT. This state scope of practice is based on the Department of Transportation's 2009 edition of standards. The next piece of legislation that defines EMT's skills is Title 22 under the Social Security Act. Division 9 
defines pre-hospital emergency medical services and chapter 2 is you the EMT this was last updated July 1st of 2017 your takeaway from this particular slide is that your state scope of practice is determined by the Department of Transportation now despite there being a state scope of practice you are going to be working based on local regulations and local regulations are referred to as LEMSAs L-E-M-S-A stands for Local Emergency Medical Services Authority so since you are attending a class in Los Angeles County we will be teaching you the Los Angeles County EMS Agency's scope of practice believe it or not if you move from county to county you will be allowed to do certain things and not do certain things LA County is very restrictive as opposed to if you go to Riverside County you would be able to do more of your state scope of practice in another county such as Riverside or San Bernardino as a matter of fact in LA County for a paramedic unit to be um, licensed you have to have two paramedic units or two paramedic two paramedics in the actual unit in Riverside they can have a paramedic unit with one paramedic and one EMT so you can see there's a big difference from county to county now since you are EMTs basic life support your medical direction is considered offline keyword offline in other words all of your orders or all the things that you're allowed to do have already been signed off by have already been signed off by a medical director in LA County our director our medical director is Moraine Gashai Hill this doctor has signed your scope of practice which allows you to do what you are going to learn in this class now advanced life support paramedics their standing or their orders are online as a paramedic I have to call the hospital and request to do certain things so once again your medical direction is offline keyword offline so let's talk now national training levels we have EMR which is basic life support EMT basic life support AEMT which is advanced life support and paramedic advanced life support levels of training recognized in California are EMT now you can have different certification levels as an EMT in California you can be certified as a EMTB EMT1 or EMTA in California advanced EMTs their certifications are known as EMT2 or EMT intermediate and then the last level is paramedic and their certification is known as EMTP or MICP okay so this next bit of information is going to be very important to you it's the state requirement for maintaining your EMT certification in order to maintain your certification you have to conduct 24 hours of refresher training and skills validation every two years 
So this means the state gives you two years to attend 24 hours of continuing education courses, as well as you will have to find a provider to sign you off on your skills. Now most companies that you work for will have someone on staff that can sign you off on your skills. The training, sometimes the providers you work for will provide you training classes, but you will have to attend training classes at local hospitals, online. There are various different programs available to get you those CE credits. Okay, so let's talk examples of local EMS systems. Los Angeles City, they're a local EMS system. They have engine companies and rescue ambulances. Another example would that be Los Angeles. Another example of a local EMS system would be Los Angeles County. Once again, they have engine companies, and then they have a rescue squad, and their ambulances are provided by a local ambulance company that's been awarded the transportation contract. Now, within this local EMS system, we'll use Los Angeles as an example. We have 911 units. These are units that respond to emergencies code 3. So those are the paramedics for the fire department and the ambulance companies that have those 911 contracts. Some of you will work for ambulance companies that do IFTs, interfacility transports. That's transporting a patient from one facility to the next, normally not done under emergency situations, so we call those code 2 transports. Some of you then will work for companies where you'll do CCTs, and this is a critical care transport. And you will essentially take a nurse or doctor with you because the patient's so critical, they require that level of training. Um, in my experience, I was assigned to a CCT unit out of Children's Hospital Los Angeles, and every run we went on was code three because the patients were that dire. So you do have the opportunities of running, emer uh, running emergencies in those systems as well. EMS is just part of the bigger healthcare system. The healthcare system and the healthcare system consists also of specialty centers. Those include emergency departments, special facilities, trauma centers, burn centers, pediatric centers like I just mentioned, poison control centers, and other specialty centers um, that are locally dependent, such as a STEMI, stroke, or sexual assault center. Now before we move on, you may be asking yourself, how is this lecture, you know, how does it look? Well, I, I just want to emphasize that this lecture is based on the PowerPoint that you should have already reviewed with your primary instructor or you're reviewing, you're following along with the downloads. So if you have done that, this should make sense. If you are just following along because you found this particular podcast, I will be working on providing the slides that we provide to our students and this presentation may make a little bit more sense. It's more geared to the local Los Angeles County EMT training programs that we have but hopefully as future lectures or as you listen to future lectures those will be able to help you in preparation of the national registry so i do apologize to those listeners that may not be attending our particular emt program so what are the roles and responsibilities of an emt 
Well, your first responsibility is your safety. Your safety always comes first. If you are not safe, then you cannot do your job. So remember, your personal safety is always first. Next, it's the safety of the crew, the patient, and bystanders. So remember, you, your crew, patients, and then bystanders. When you arrive at the scene of an incident, your next responsibility after ensuring you're safe and your partner safe is to conduct your patient assessment. We will be teaching you how to do that throughout the program. Based upon your assessment, you will then provide patient care. Once your patient has been stabilized, you will then move your patient onto your gurney and get the patient ready to be transported to the facility which meets their medical needs. Once you have determined the facility that your patient will be going to, you will then have to decide on how you're going to transport the patient. Code 2, Code 3, and then when you arrive at the facility, you are still not done until you hand your patient off to the staff who will be providing treatment to that patient. You can't just put the patient on the most available bed and then drive away. That would be abandonment and we'll be talking about that later on in another lecture. So it is the actual transfer of care to the nurse or doctor who will be treating that patient. One of the most important things to remember as an EMT is that you're a patient advocate. You're there to make sure that your patient is taken care of at whatever level that may be. If they're a victim of an assault, you need to call the police. If you find that the patient is being abused, child abuse, elder neglect or abuse, then you make the appropriate notifications. I'm a big advocate of this. We're in this field to take care of people. We're here to make people better than how we found them. You cannot forget patient advocacy. We have many bad medical personnel out there. Don't be one of them. I tell my students that is the difference between being a good EMT and a great EMT. You should always be striving to be a great EMT and great EMTs are patient advocates. So don't forget that. If you see your patient being treated poorly by a hospital staff, guess what? They have a boss. Get a hold of their boss and lodge that complaint. We do not need bad people treating our patients worse. So as I get off my high horse about patient advocacy, I now want to talk about the professional attributes of an EMT. You have to be professional. You have to look professional. You have to act professional. There are so many emergency medical responders out there that just look disheveled, boots unzipped, shirts untucked. You got to look professional. I mean, we're here to save people's lives. They got to be able to trust you. So with that, your appearance, you got to be neat, clean, and you have to have just that positive image. You also have to make sure that your certifications are up to date and your skills are up to date. Are you providing care based on current standards or are you referring to some standards that you learned two, three, four years ago? As I mentioned before, are you putting your patient's needs first? This is an important this is an important rule to live by, but once again, you can't put the needs of the patient first 
making yourself not safe. Your safety still comes first. How do we know that we are providing good medical care? Well, that, that comes in the way of evaluation and quality improvement. Quality improvement evaluates what we did for our patient, the outcomes, and did it work. This is why you need to be recertified every two years, all of us. EMTs, paramedics, nurses, this is the reason why we have to go through all that continuing education because we're going to find that there are things that we shouldn't be doing anymore or we should be doing things differently. A prime example is CPR. Back when I learned CPR in 1987, we did CPR at 15 to 2 at a rate of 60 times a minute. Fast forward, about four to five years ago, everything changed, and now CPR is done at 30 to 2 at a rate of no less than 100 compressions a minute. That's 40 extra compressions from what we were doing in 1987. And our success rate went from 3% to 30% when we add the AED. So this is very significant. So it's this Q, it's just basically quality insurance that keeps our game up and ensures that we are changing our treatment modalities based on good scientific practices. What is your role in this process? Well, it's the proper documentation of what you're doing for your patients. That documentation provides us with your runs, what you found wrong with the patient, what you did, and did they have a positive outcome from that treatment? If you're following along the PowerPoint slides, the role of the EMT in quality improvement include documentation, run reviews and audits, gathering feedback from patients and hospital staff, conducting preventative maintenance, continuing education, skill maintenance, and research. Let's talk about medical direction. As stated before, an EMT's orders are, what is it? Offline. Paramedic is online. So medical direction. Medical direction is a physician or surgeon who is responsible for the clinical and patient care aspects of an EMS system. So in LA County, we have a doctor who is responsible for all of the emergency care in Los Angeles County. They're the ones that sign off on the policies and procedures for EMTs and paramedics, and each county has a medical director. Every ambulance service rescue squad must have a physician medical direction. And this person is responsible for reviewing and quality of improvement. Let's talk about types of medical direction as we just did. We have two types, online and offline. Online are those that are done by telephone and radio. Offline is the EMT basics in LA County. And there's a set of protocols and standing orders which you are allowed to practice medicine under. As we begin to wind down this lecture, let's talk about prevention and public education. Prevention and public education are aspects of the EMS where the focus is on public health. What does that look like? Well, 
these are the things that are done to prevent events from happening. So a prime example, there was a time when people did not have to wear a seatbelt while in an automobile. Well, today we have a seatbelt law that restrains, that requires people to wear seatbelts, and we all know that seatbelts restrain you inside of the vehicle during an accident. So this type of education helps us to have more critical emergencies revolving traffic accidents. Another example would be kids wearing bicycle helmets. When I was a kid, we didn't have to have a bicycle helmet. Today, you do. So these are various different programs that help us to prevent emergencies. Another aspect of this is vaccines. We have vaccines that prevent measles, chickenpox, uh, hepatitis. So these are all preventative things to stop bad things from happening in the future. In this prevention and public education, EMS comes in to the into the scene because we work with public health agencies and we work with public health agencies after the event has already happened. We discuss what we what we saw, what we did to help these agencies to have a plan for the future. EMS research is one of the last components of all of this as research is based on evidence-based medicine and is based on current research. This is why it's important for EMS providers to stay up to date on the latest advances in medicine. Once again, this is why we have the requirement of being recertified every two years. So this concludes lecture one. Little dry, a little boring, but it just has some foundational information. It is my recommendation that you take the key components from your actual lecture and this lecture and put the two together. A prime example is what kind of orders do EMTs have in LA County? And that would be offline as well as your standard of care is provided by the Department of Transportation. So these are various different things that you will be retested on during your foundational block one, as well as seeing some questions on your final exam. Hopefully this lecture will help you. And if you have any suggestions, please leave them in the comments. And I look forward to seeing you guys in class. Good luck.